0: still fired up and we're still talking about revolution.
1: Hello and welcome to the Doon Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. First up on the show... We're going to be speaking with Jeff, Jeff. Sorry, we're going to be speaking with Jeff McMullen, who is a journalist and filmmaker, and we're going to be speaking to him about a recent event um, that happened in Melbourne, and we're going to talk to him about the intervention and a statement that Aboriginal elders have compiled, and concerned Australians actually organised <clears throat> this event, and it's called "Time to End Ten Years of Intervention." In the Northern Territory, um, there was a statement and a large group of eminent Australians across the fields of law, health, academia and the arts are calling on the Federal Government to heed the pleas by Indigenous Elders for an immediate end to discriminatory policies in the Northern Territory and elsewhere. Their statement to be launched at Melbourne Law School on Monday 28th of August, which has just been says that ten years of federal government intervention in the Northern Territory illustrates the continuing discrimination, racism and lack of justice towards indigenous people. So um, shortly we're going to be speaking with Jeff, Jeff McMullen about that and after that we're going to speak with Rosalie about the same topic and she's an Aboriginal um, elder, so we'll be um, speaking with with Auntie Rosalie um, pretty soon. So without any further ado, I'm hoping that we're going to be speaking with Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to the program.
2: Good afternoon, Marissa.
1: It's lovely to have you. Good afternoon. Um, now, Jeff, I'm just wondering if you could just um, introduce yourself very briefly and just talk a little bit about um, some, of, some of the work that you've been doing.
2: Well, over my 50 years of journalism, uh, you can't be in Australia without seeing the injustices that have been continuing throughout that half century against the First Peoples. And so my work began reporting on those injustices and progressed to trying to do something about it to work with communities and in particular to give voice to the priorities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders about changing what is wrong. So my work has been across many fields, literacy, health, community building, and always advocating that they had the answers to these difficulties. Uh, The government has demonstrated now over a much longer period, two centuries in fact, that the government top-down approach to local problems usually exacerbates the problem and and the Northern Territory intervention is a classic example of how government has made things much worse.
1: Absolutely and it's quite frustrating isn't it Jeff? because a lot of the time in mainstream media it certainly isn't picked up about the fact that Aboriginal elders are not being listened to. Could you actually explain to listeners why the statement has been compiled and talk a little bit about Um, some of the consequences of the intervention 10 years on?
2: Well, I'm certain that most Australians do not realise that 10 years on from when John Howard sent in the Army and Federal Police to take over 73 communities in the Northern Territory, that we still have what amounts to living in an occupied territory across about 500 homelands and all of those 73 remote communities most australians simply think this was over after the emergency phase that the minister for indigenous affairs Brough, had promised in his army-like fashion that we were going to go through the emergency to normalization using all of that war rhetoric that hasn't happened the 10-year extension of the discriminatory measures that howard launched has in fact maintained the discrimination And this is the most important point to understand. What is happening in Australia is unlawful. It's in breach of our own Racial Discrimination Act and it continues to breach significant international covenants that Australia has supported, but in fact pays lip service to because we have not responded to the UN castigation of our actions. We've in fact... Snubbed our nose at the special rapporteur from the UN uh, and at the Human Rights Commissioner, but said these measures are in breach of the conventions because Aboriginal people never agreed to this impossible interference in their lives.
1: It's actually so true, and, and, and in fact, the thing that's quite disturbing as well, Jeff, is that I was having a look at the Little Children Are Sacred report. And they tried, didn't they, The, the Pat Anderson and, and others? Um, Rex Wild, yes. The, the the Rex magistrate. Wilde. Yeah, they tried, didn't they, to, to assist?
2: Well, very interestingly, that former magistrate and barrister, Rex Wilde, you see, is one of the supporters of the over 200 eminent Australians who have supported this statement, calling for the government's federal and territory to listen to what the community leaders are saying at the grassroots. Uh, Rex Wild and Pat Anderson both fully understand that what they recommended in their initial report about well-being and lack of in the Northern Territory for the children uh, has never been the focus of these federal controls. All of the indicators that have been cited by the government's own reports show that children are in fact more neglected more exposed to domestic violence they are more likely to harm themselves or even take their lives and as teenagers more of them than ever are heading for incarceration with that mandatory sentencing policy so the focus on the child of the rhetoric which was really a big lie campaign it was a massive government attempt to exert federal control from canberra over the northern territory because of other political agendas. The, The well-being of the communities, of families, and especially of the children, is so serious today that everybody connected to the well-being of children has spoken out against the intervention. And that's important to look at this statement as people like Dr Fiona Stanley, the former Australian of the Year, one of the most experienced epidemiologists in terms of surveying the lack of well-being for these of our children in Australia. And then you had Dr Kelvin Kong, the first Aboriginal surgeon. So there's a great deal of authority in many of these names, especially the jurists, the lawyers, the QCs, who all said, can't you see that what the elders are advocating is a whole of community approach to begin with those children And to try to keep their families together and to see that the conditions that they live in are what any child needs, those essentials, to actually arrive at well-being. That's the part that we haven't delivered, and the intervention by controlling and then suffocating the voices from the Aboriginal organisations at the grassroots. We have only made things worse to the point that when the government finally admits its failure and begins to exit from these communities, yes. it's going to be like leaving a war zone. They will then realise what catastrophic damage they've done to the ability of those communities to fix the problems.
1: So the problems haven't been fixed, Jeff.
2: I can't see a single indicator of what the government said this was about that has been addressed. You only have to go to Malcolm Turnbull's uh, Indigenous Health Report Card, the Closing the Gaps Report, uh, and you can see that there is no indicator of Aboriginal wellbeing in the Northern Territory that has progressed. And as I work closely with those communities, as do many of those who've signed on to statement, we can see with our own eyes that the overcrowded housing, the poverty of the community, the malnutrition of children, the lack of healthcare for children, the lack of early learning and schooling for children, school attendance is worse. And it it leads to this avalanche of a combination of mental illness, physical illness, and a collapse, a social collapse. That's what we're staring at, Marissa, and we're not acting. And I guess this is a call to action to say, Listen to the men and women who live in these communities who are describing with a great deal of anguish their frustration that nobody really is paying any attention. We're all mesmerised by talk of constitutional change and recognition and plebiscites and postal votes of things that may or may not change, but we're not seeing what is right in front of our eyes.
1: Absolutely. And... Jeff, I commend you for for explaining this so clearly. The other thing that I wanted to to ask you is: there anything in the statement that talks about the fact that that land has been grabbed as a result of the intervention?
2: Well, the the land grab begins with the um, undermining of traditional owners and Aboriginal organisations to actually govern their own communities it's important to see that these lands are privately owned in the sense that collectively, communally, Aboriginal people have the right to these lands. It's really some of the scraps left over from the dispossession over those two centuries. But then once you undermine the authority of the local organisation, things like housing that should be administered by a local housing authority end up going to contractors sometimes multinational contractors that operate like this vast global company that come in set up a compound fly in fly out workers none of their money actually benefits the community they they bring a town with them and they take the town out when they leave what they in fact have disrupted is the efficiency of those communities say take a community like man and It has its own timber works. It has its own brick-making factory. It has very able-bodied women and men who have shown they can build a magnificent building, a a million-and-a-half-dollar building many years ago that was their major cultural centre in that community, in that very large community. What the intervention style was, was to bring in outside workers who were really benefiting in terms of making money over the top of the misery... But it totally disrupted the ability of those communities to sustain themselves. The local economy is shattered. And then, of course, it was all followed up by saying, with what we have today is called the Community Development Programme, the current work for the Dole Scheme is really a sickening, twisted version of what was there before, where Aboriginal people had a scale of work and a balance of community responsibility. Today, they work like a slave, like an indentured labourer, except they're not paid a real wage. They have to survive on a couple of hundred dollars, and it is really required work. It's, if you do not work, uh, you will be punished. So to, to get this meagre check, you end up doing make-up jobs. It isn't the real work. It's not productive like the building uh, or the construction jobs that they are fully capable of. I mean, these people built the outback. They worked on every area of development from the arrival of the Europeans. So the whole idea that they do not have the skills to be able to build and maintain their own communities is laughable. It was, it was an intervention and it was unlawful and it is still discriminatory because the punitive aspects of it are only directed at these Aboriginal people.
1: Yeah, it's it's quite sad, isn't it, Jeff? Really, that you know, it it, it nothing's changed really.
2: Well, uh, we hope that the uh, strength of the legal analysis behind this document. You you have people here from the former Chief Justice of the Family Court, Alistair Nicholson. And uh, Elizabeth Evert, who was the, the yes. very first Chief Justice of the Family Court. Yep. You've got people like Greg Barnes, who was the National President of the Australian Lawyers' Alliance. Gillian Burnside, Larissa Barrent. These very distinguished Good. law experts are trying to focus us all, and in particular federal politicians, on this unlawful continuing government interference in the lives of Aboriginal people. I think if more people truly read themselves into the facts and understand that it's not over, a little baby born in that year that Howard launched this in 2007 will spend first 15 years of life living in an occupied territory. So that's our responsibility, is to see that you don't have to look overseas to watch Uh, an injustice unravel you have to look here and and see that this is our responsibility to act now and see that it's ended because five more years of this will continue to pile on the damage we'll be looking at an even bigger mess and of course ultimately it will be those communities and their elders that are left to try to clean it up this is a very old historic pattern in australia
1: It is, and indeed you could also construe it as 1788 all over again.
2: I suppose you can, and yet why I remain relentless about trying to inform people first and foremost of what is happening, there are much better ways to do this. All of the sectors that you mentioned in your introduction, health, education, community building and human rights, have all set out very clear blueprints that are really cooperative but importantly are building what the aboriginal communities say should be the priorities and it starts with making their living conditions truly livable i don't know of a single person outside of those communities who would put up with the poverty that has gone on all of my lifetime it truly has not changed yes people might have gone from the humpy into an overcrowded house but the actual conditions of life The crowded conditions that children grow up in, in these communities, has not really changed. And I've been around for almost seven decades. So it's it's unforgivable that with the wealth of this nation that comes from Aboriginal land, that we can't work together. That is the, the approach that the elders are advocating. They simply want the government that keeps talking about Aboriginal voice... Well, let's listen to those voices, and after the government's had its turn and created this mess, let's see if the elders actually have a better way to clean it up.
1: That's exactly right. And, in fact, where will, where is this statement going, Jeff?
2: Well, it will be heading to uh, federal parli- parliamentarians of all parties... Uh, It's gone to all of the legal bodies that have the potential to advocate for Aboriginal people. It's gone to alliances uh, of lawyers that have the ability to be able to look at the breaking of our racial discrimination, the transgressing of those covenants, and to see whether it's possible to actually take action if the government persists with this. Because it's interesting to me that if you look at our own civil rights tradition, we have some wonderful lawyers that have been eloquent and have tried all the way to the High Court. Michael Kirby's last dissenting um, judgment on the High Court was to say that Aboriginal people should have been given the opportunity to challenge the constitutionality of the intervention in the first place. But he was overruled. So I, I'm using him as an example to say. There are many great legal minds in this country that know we have trampled the Racial Discrimination Act. We've made a mockery of the UN system of special measures because for a thing to be a special measure, in other words, to have a kind of positive discrimination, you have to have the prior informed consent of the population that you're going to launch those measures on. And in this case, we know this was... A military-style takeover. It was dressed up as an emergency about children, but there was no consultation and there certainly was no prior informed consent. And so there, there remains many possibilities at the international level of still challenging this, but that's lawyers work. My work is to try to share with Australians the truth of things and to say, I don't think if you understood how bad things are that you would really put up with it. I I think most decent Australians would really be outraged to think that we let children, that we let mothers, that we let old people wither like this because that is what is happening, Marissa. These communities intentionally are withering on the vine. They hope that the 500 homelands will just collapse. They say they want these people to move off their lands, but show me a town that is ready with housing and schooling and jobs to absorb them. The truth is they are healthier on country. There are many local economic responses that I've mentioned, the the, uh, efficiency of the Maningrida community in that realm of being able to develop a local economy. What we should be doing is supporting those initiatives not trying to round people up yet again and march them off somewhere else where we will pile on the misery. So there, is, there are pathways and there is a course of action for us all. I think the first thing is the message goes to the federal parliament and except for the handful of Greens who have opposed this from the beginning, every one of them, Liberal, liberal, Nationals or Labor will have on their conscience that they have in fact presided over what I believe is the most damaging policy from the federal government since creating the initial stolen generations.
1: Absolutely. And while we're at it, would it be fair to say that it really is an intervention across the whole of Australia?
2: Well, the, the, the smear and the damage to Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, broadly to Indigenous Australians, was collective and widespread. It's felt by other parts of the country initially as a psychological assault, because stereotyping people, telling the nation that Aboriginal men cannot be responsible towards their children and that they've afflicted something on them that does not happen elsewhere in the community on a scale that is so disastrous that we're going to take over their lives, was such a calculated propaganda that really, if you look back to why they launched it, you can understand why they reached for that kind of rhetoric. It was, it was overturning the whole belief that Aboriginal people should be living on their lands organized in their language and cultural groups and that that was their best social order, the order that, in fact, had been here for 65,000 years or more. So, collectively, this has been an attempt to disrupt the communal, an attempt to break the connection between the First Peoples and their lands, an attempt to move people off the land where they display that continuous occupation that, of course, with our modern treachery in the court system, unless you have that continuous occupation, you are no longer able to claim title to your land. That's the nature of native title. So it has been uh, a brutal psychological assault, and it also was, in a way, the first wave of the social controls that were tested on Aboriginal people and have now been extended into other forms of punitive welfare control. Measures, of course, that experts like Professor John Altman at Deakin University say the global evidence cannot support any of these work for the dole schemes. Uh, Personally, I can say I saw attempts to do this in Canada on people who'd been chronically unemployed and attempts in the United States to control the spending and, and work requirements of African-American single mothers. In both cases, this kind of social engineering is a disaster because you spend all of this money on a system of control and you crush the initiative of the individual and the family. The very thing that these people who believe that enterprise is the answer should really understand that unless people are able to move and choose and have some initiative, control over their life, then you will not see social problems improve. It always comes up from the grassroots, not from some top-down control mechanism. So all of those things, correctly, Marissa, you say, the intervention and its brutal damage has really hurt i believe aboriginal and torres strait islander people around the country it just undermined the goodwill that was there around the time of kevin rudd's apology it's it's the old pattern of raising hope but then behaving with such political treachery that people aboriginal people would say why should we ever trust a government and so instead of carrying people with you instead of having unity of purpose, about let's address the lack of housing. The fact that our first Australians really do not have adequate housing in the land that has been theirs for over 65,000 years, it's really, to most overseas people, unfathomable.
1: Absolutely.
2: We have chosen for it to be this way. It is not that Aboriginal people do not want the same kind of, fundamental rights, water, shelter, decent food, schooling for their children, work, all of those things are just human needs and they are our rights. But we have not assured those rights
1: for our first people. Absolutely. And that's a really good note um, to end on. And we'll be interviewing um, Rosalie, former Australian of the Year. Um, Next.
2: Rosalie Cunis monks Marissa uh, understands this. So well, because in her own community around the Eastern Arid lands uh, in Utopia and across the Northern Territory, she has travelled very widely throughout this decade of the intervention. And I think she is a very courageous person, along with Dr. Janini Gondra, who had also been one of the initiators of, of the statement. The statement, yeah. uh, They have travelled as far as Geneva to try to tell the international human rights organisations what was happening, how the law was being trampled. And that led to the special rapporteurs and human rights commissioners coming here and making that independent assessment that, yes, this is Australia's record. We are still discriminating against our First Peoples.
1: Jeff, thank you so much for coming onto the program and thank you so much for providing a very, very concise and comprehensive background to, the, to what's been happening.
2: Thank you, Marissa. And Thanks
1: a lot. Bye. And bye bye. And that was Jeff mcmullen um, journalist and filmmaker, and he's done a lot of extensive work with Aboriginal elders and um and helping to overcome some of the problems and and deep, deep issues in regards to the intervention ten years on. And yeah, we're gonna be going to interviewing Rosalie shortly, so um stay tuned. And pretty soon you're going to be hearing um, a song by Kev Carmody called We Shall Not Be Moved. But before that, we'll go into a quick announcement.
2: Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that yes there is uh, certain hazards but only to primitive peoples those that don't wear clothes and don't wash unlike us british so the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice and as we fast forward to today we see that same thing
1: three cr keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time,
2: it's important to have a
0: voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia.
1: And you're back with the Do and Time show and... We're gonna be um interviewing Rosalie next. We've just got her on the line, so I'll play that Kev Carmody song a bit later on. Hello, Rosalie, welcome to the program.
0: Good afternoon.
1: It's so great to have you. Um and we just interviewed Jeff McMullen previously, who um was spoke very highly of you on air. Yeah. Are you there? Yes. Oh, sorry, Rosalie. Yeah, so um I was just wondering if you were happy to just expand a little bit on what's been happening with the intervention ten years on and and talk perhaps about about the statement that um, that has been compiled
0: uh, the uh, not concerned concerned Australians indeed yes um, to expand I guess, on the NTER, which is one of the most racist? legislations in modern-day Australia, unforgivably so, Um, that is continuing. It has brought people to their knees. It is a draconian exercise. I don't think it can happen almost anywhere else in the world. Now, what... They are looking for, this is the policy makers, I'm not sure. If they were looking to diminish and devalue a group of people, I believe that they are succeeding. And they're succeeding with impunity. In modern day, 2017 Australia. If I could see there was something put in to discipline anyone at all, any society at all, because of reasons, I would understand. But this unreasonable exercise is a blight on every Australian, black, white or indifferent, and I believe that there has to be more than an apology. There has to be real efforts to assist people who've traveled for thousands of years without any um, monetary value or cultivation in that sense. So we need to have a look at it, look at it intelligently and see what they are doing to a group
1: of us, Aboriginal people. It's it's very important, isn't it? And our show is the Do and Time show, and oh. we concentrate a lot on incarceration of all peoples, but in particular Aboriginal people, who, as you know, are overrepresented. And we also do a lot of work on Aboriginal deaths in custody as well.
0: Oh, you, you go across the. Spectrum then?
1: Absolutely, and and we're very committed to providing a safe environment um, for everybody, but also in particular for First Nations people to um, to, to talk about what they want to talk about because often the mainstream media doesn't emphasise that, Auntie.
0: Well, everything aimed at Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory in the remote parts, and I would imagine it would go across to Queensland, South Australia, Western Australia, definitely Western Australia, it's terrible. Everything they've done is botched. Yeah. The, the government employment scheme, which, you, you know, more than anything else, it's a slave labour, call it for what it is. There has never been any investment in Aboriginal people living on their lands. If Aboriginal people through desperation moves into a town like Alice or Tennant Creek, they just become the ghetto people living 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 not in the main township but on the fringe for god's sakes it's got to stop it's got to stop if needs be there should be aboriginal identified housing that gives you a little bit of dignity and there should be work for aboriginal people We have a bad, bad misnomer, it's not real, of being people who don't want to participate. That's not true. This morning, only this morning, one of my cousins came down to get something off me and I said, aren't you at work today? And he said, nobody picked me up because they have to go travel maybe 40 k's away to Ulbran in this instance. That was the case, and he couldn't get there. Is he going to walk forty, 40 kilometers to uh, CB? Uh, that um, yeah, that um, employment game, uh, scheme, government employment scheme.
1: Yeah, it's a long way.
0: It's that, and it's also white teachers not turning up to teach without. An apology without letting the black assistant teachers know there'll be no school today it's that kind of absolute ignorance yes. of respect on communities to Aboriginal
1: people. There has to be respect
0: well, tell you what without respecting each other, we won't get anywhere too
1: far it's It's very true. Rosalie, I wonder and if you would feel comfortable um, telling listeners what, what land you're from and if you can explain that, because often that's, that's not really emphasised in the mainstream media either.
0: I'm on a land that in the 70s was won back or converted from being a cattle station for a white family, back into the hands of, you know, about 2,000 or 1,200 or so Aboriginal people, whose ancestral lands it is. And it's Angarapa Utopia is the white person's name. I was born here, not in a hospital like majority of us, older people we were born in the bush with Aboriginal midwives and our early impressionable years were spent in a communal setting with our families. So this is Aboriginal land, the first language spoken is the Aboriginal language or dialect of this region. And therefore, when they decided to put up a school, all these are like a, a punishment that the government puts in. once schools were set up here, the children went into these schools and immediately they were relegated to that second-class citizen. The concentration always has been numeracy, and literacy. So the children coming from a background where you weren't doing the ABCs and the 1, 2, 3, it was extremely hard. And they were immediately judged as being subhumans or lesser brains than in the dominant culture. Which is now the dominant culture, the white school system. And there was no allowance made for that. And there was no allowance made for the lack of communication between the English and the first language of the land. So the children were, you know, deemed as being almost unable to be educated. Now just reverse that and see if language was spoken the children listened and became engaged on that journey, that long journey of learning and accessing knowledges that might be beyond our little land and clan group and tribal group, they would be no different from the rest of the glorious little children that grow, nurtured and loved, not made to feel inferior right from the beginning. So that's where the government has been going wrong because the assimilationist process begins on encounter by a white person coming to our lands and putting themselves up as the role model. The role model has to earn that respect and also learn to respect the person that they're going to have an influence on, whether it's a child or whether
1: it's a work You know, uh I I'm I'm particularly happy to hear that um there 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 are Aboriginal midwives and it would be it would be great. It, it's it would we could learn, you know, about the herbs and and the women's things that that have to be done. And I can certainly understand that a lot of this would be women's business and private and can't be said on air. But it would be... I suppose what I'm trying to say is it's imperative that we learn from our sisters um, about midwifery and, and, and stuff like that.
0: Well, midwifery, of course, existed for thousands of years. And the way I've seen it in action the way the ladies look after the individuals who are pregnant is amazing. They make sure they try and see which way way the baby is growing. They feel the tummy. They make sure it's not going to be a breech birth. And that's the way I've seen my mother and her sisters, you know, when they became pregnant. Being cared for by their cousins who are their sister in laws to make sure that that baby is going to be born rather than the baby and child dying through a difficult pregnancy. And that that's, yeah. care is lacking now in it's today's it's... world. A woman becomes pregnant. In the mainstream and she goes to her doctor because she's got access to doctor but in the old days when my siblings and I were born we didn't go to the doctor my brother the eldest one first one mum's first baby myself and so on so on nine of us were born out bush without a nurse a doctor or any other but the Aboriginal midwives.
1: Well, that's great. And and were you able to stay with your mother?
0: Yeah, I was able to stay with Mum and Dad. My father was the Kira. And we were absolutely close proximity and always with our aunts and uncles and all our clan group. Good. At the age of nine, Dad decided that um, us older ones should access other knowledges. So there's a, what was called a hostel Anglican for half-caste children in those days. That's what we were called. That's children with mixed, you know, bloodline. So we were sent there, and immediately on arrival, almost with no neglect anywhere at all in our history, we were made wards. And that was Native Affairs did that in that time. So I became almost a neglected child because of the colour of my skin. Uh, The government has to take care of me. And that's not just me or my siblings. It went right across the board. Right across Australia. That's the recent history. And yet there are people who are saying there's no stolen generations. There is. And that it's a myth. Now, these people are lying their heads off in broad daylight and expect us to say, OK, boss, you know better. Those days are well and truly over. My grandchildren won't stand for that. They've, They've seen the discrimination. They've experienced it. So it's time Australia grew up. Not Australia so much, but the policymakers.
1: That's exactly right, and um it's it's so important, isn't it, to be able to all work together. I'm not sure, Rosalie, whether you um you know of, of Uncle Ray Jackson who passed um some years ago now. I do. And he used to say... I do, I, Yeah, go on. Go on, yeah.
0: I do recall that person, yeah.
1: He um, did a lot of work on, on deaths in custody and the reason why I mention him is that he always used to say, it's, it's black, white or brindle. You know, we, we all need to help each other.
0: Well, we need to respect each other. Yep. Respect the differences in culture. And one of the things that I'm doing is I would like to set up a a school here on homelands exclusively to address these issues of imbalance, exclusively of devaluing our culture. I have a culture. Setting up an alternative school or education system specifically designed for First Nations children. Because our First Nations children, they don't grow up with one set of parents. We have in our social structure a caring village of people. And we need to have somewhere where we can bring up our children, caring and sharing those children, and also putting into them their self-worth. I will not go begging to any white system to say, can you make me whole again? It is up to us now to heal ourselves. And healing does not mean that we go out of the social structure which our ancestors have put in place in this country and jump into a white man's arena and the white people know better to heal us. That's not the answer. No, it's not. The answer it lies in our cultural identity. And that's where every Australian Aboriginal person should be, learning to love themselves again because we've been battered and no better way of looking at recent history of how we've been battered and in the Northern Territory we copped it with the Northern Territory intervention, emergency response.
1: Indeed. So mm.
0: my I, I hope to I hope to set this up because I don't want too much government funding in it. Because government funding comes with this thing of control and we become dependent on that welfare handout that's where we're going wrong
1: thank you because that's that's something that that I have often thought myself to be honest
0: yeah well it's no good me leaving here um becoming a professor in a different culture and then utilising the poverty of my people to raise my profile. I am not apart from them. I am one of them. I hold the language. I hold the ceremonies. And I hope, I hope that in another millennium there will be the distinctly aboriginal culture which is second to none as far as i'm concerned continues to grow with it will come because we live in a digital age we will be citizens of the world as well comes other knowledges that will not swamp and kill us like the assimilationist horrible history of the white culture in australia Immediately we became second class, a subhuman people. We did not move from our country. we're still here, and we're still dancing and singing, and we are the most resilient people in the world, against all odds, and that 's where I want to be that's right. I choose to be there. I choose it because it never leaves me sitting alone on the outskirts. But that's becoming more and more common as we are divided and ruled for vested interests of any kind.
1: Absolutely. So we
0: need to be alert, look after each other and love each other as well and like each other.
1: Yeah, that's that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. <But> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, it, it's a it's hard kind of saying it without offending other people, but it, it's time for the truth. It's time for the truth, and it's time, really, for action. No more talking.
1: And that's a, a really good note to end on. We're nearing the end of our show. And look, I'm, I'm very honoured to have you on the show. And if listeners um, have missed part of this interview, you can, and this is including yourself, Rosalie, you can actually go onto the pod. We're going to be podcasting this show during the week, and you'll be able to listen to that on the internet if, if you can, or we can send you a copy. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming onto the show, and I'm hoping to have you back for future updates. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And that was um, Rosalie Rosalie Kunath-Monks, the former Australian of the Year of the Northern Territory. It's approximately 4.50, and we'll be going into that Kev Carmody song now that I promised you.